Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. For today's episode, I'm joined by friend of the show, Danny, to dissect Jordan Peele's visionary horror debut feature, Get Out, starring Daniel Kaluuya and Allison Williams. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you. How's it going? Pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. I'm excited to talk about today's movie because it's one of those movies that I recommend to everybody that sees it, whether they're fans of horror or not, kind of like yourself. Like I, I know that you're not the biggest fan of horror movies or like horror movies at all, but I feel like this is one of those movies that is really great for kind of bridging the gap for people that kind of want to like dip their toes a little bit into the horror genre. It's a blending of a couple of genres, but it's definitely uh, horror-centric, to say the least. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of horror films. And that's why mm. I kind of put this off for, you know, three years. Mm-hmm. But after watching it, the first thing that came to my mind was I related this to um, Shutter Island. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's got elements of horror and it's almost portrayed as a horror film, but it's mm-hmm. more thriller than, than horror. You know, mm-hmm. the, the horror part is just, you know, the music and how certain scenes are played out. The suspense gives it that horror fit, fit, um, horror feel. But mm-hmm. the whole uh, the whole aura of the movie, at least for me, it, it was more of a thriller. Yeah. And, like, I relate that to Shutter Island a lot because, you know, there are parts where, you know, you, like, there's a lot of similarities, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you know, they walk in and you see all these people looking at um, Chris. Everyone's yeah. looking at Chris um, kind of awkwardly. And it's just like mm-hmm. in Shutter Island where as soon as Leo steps onto the island, everyone's kind of looking at him like... Eyeballing so, him. Yeah, so you know from the get-go something's going on. So Yeah, that's a, that's a fair comparison in terms of just like you're kind of introduced to this character and then that character's dropped into this world where something seems off, even though people aren't necessarily like actively hostile towards them. They, it's still like they're being watched, like they're a specimen almost. And it's up to the viewer to kind of try to uncover what that mystery is in a lot of ways. And that definitely ties into like the thriller aspect of the movie where I would agree also Get Out is uh, stylistically and atmospherically very much a horror movie. But at the same time, it really has that kind of investigatory element where you're trying to just suss out why certain characters are acting this way and kind of like seeing behind the curtain, as it were, for the inner workings. But for people that haven't seen Get Out, uh, Get Out's currently streaming on video on demand, and it's very much a cautionary tale of the black experience in white America. As our protagonist, Chris, visits his white girlfriend Rose's parents for the weekend. Uh, Their weekend retreat grows from playfully awkward to sinisterly disturbing as Chris uncovers the true purpose of their weekend getaway. Uh, So this is definitely... I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it as somebody that has never seen this movie, especially somebody that, like you said, is not typically keen on these types of movies. So what was your initial reaction to finishing the movie or to experiencing the movie? It literally reminded me of Shutter Island, like I said. like That that was the first comparison that I made. Um, Mm -hmm. Both, I was a little hesitant on watching, you know, but after... uh, a lot of recommendations from my friends at the time I watched it, uh, Shutter Island and this. And I, I, I find those two films to be very 
there are a lot of uh, similarities and mm-hmm. it, yeah, I mean, th- there were a few horror-esque parts, but nothing like over the top. Is, is this actually I mean, the, def- defined as like a horror film? So Jordan Peele describes it as like a horror thriller in that there okay. he has a lot of like horror influences. Um, and that's also one of the kind of themes of Daily Horror Habit that I discuss with guests sometimes is that it's like, it's our interpretation of what is scary. So sometimes non-traditional movies, one the guest or myself will consider to have horror elements. So in that regard, I like to be open to conversing about them. Like uh, a mutual friend of ours, Alex, uh, picked Annihilation to talk about, which is a sci-fi movie that isn't traditionally a horror movie, but we had both agreed that like, there are definitely some horror elements of that film. And so for those reasons, I think it's a pretty good fit for the show. And I don't want to be, I don't want to, rest- already there's the genre of horror kind of restrictive to some people. So I like to be open in terms of like, hey, I consider some moments of this to be horror. You might, you might not, but we can still kind of talk about it under the same lens. Yeah, I think the horror aspects of it heavily depends on who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, because just to reiterate your point, certain elements to other to some more than others would um, identify as horror. Um, yeah. But I would definitely say this is more of a thriller, you mm-hmm. know, because not everyone likes horror, but I think everyone could enjoy a good thriller. Yeah. So if this movie was described to me in the beginning as a thriller, mm-hmm. I would have, you know, watched it a lot sooner. I mean, then again, on the, the other side to that is like maybe – trying to investigate a little more into certain movies that are described as horror to see if it could be a film that kind of bridges the gap such as this. Cause like, this is one of those movies that when it came out and I saw it, I, as soon as it was available on video, I shared it. I invited people over and I tried to get as many people to watch it. It was like, I shared it with both sets of grandparents. I shared it with friends similar to you that don't generally like horror movies, but the film itself, Get Out, is such a strong blending of, like you said, thriller, horror, but also like there's a lot of humor in the movie, and that's something that we'll get into in a little bit. But it just shows that it's very accessible in a way that I don't think a lot of movies that are under the umbrella of horror generally are. Um, and in terms of just like, for me, I would say right from the opening of the movie, I would describe it as a horror movie because of that opening scene, that scene where we have. Uh, Keith Stanfield, Andre, who's walking down the street and a car starts following him. And then he's like, fuck that. I'm just, I'm, you're not going to get me. He's like muttering to himself. And then he w- changes direction. And when he turns around, the car door is open and there's no driver. But then all of a sudden he gets blindsided and the guy chokes him out and puts him in the trunk. And it's like, that abduction is very much like a horror moment to me, especially when you can't see the antagonist's face. He's got this crazy medieval helmet on and it's like you have zero context for what's happening. So for that, that's like a very strong kind of horror opening for me. Yeah, it's that, that's I, I agree with that's a, a, a staple of a horror uh, scene. Mm-hmm. I always look at the first scene of a film and how it ties into like I always I feel like the first scene of a film is if you were to boil the entire film down into like one scene, the, f- the first scene would be it. Like it sets, it's like the thesis. Like that's how mm-hmm. I kind of look at it sometimes. 
And that's how I felt this film was. If you look at, you know, the plot, you know, this is what happens, you know, in the movie, essentially, is they kidnap people and you, you later, you find out later on, you know, what they do, but that's a perfect example of, like, of that. And then another mm-hmm. scene is uh, when they're driving to upstate New York and they hit that deer and he, uh, Chris walks out of the car and then goes to see that. Like, that's foreshadowing, like, what's going to happen to him. Yeah. I think it shows, again, like, it's such a remarkable film on its own. But then when you realize that this is a directorial debut, like, it's so insane to me, the layers of foreshadowing that are in the film and the sort of the little Easter eggs that you don't pick up on the first time. Like, I think I've seen this movie probably six or seven times since it was released. And every single time I watch it, I pick up on something new. So like you said, that scene is a really great indication of not only foreshadowing for what Chris is about to experience, but at the same time, there's a parallel between that and what we we later learn about it happened to his mother. Like his mother was a hit and run victim, basically. And he feels very remorseful because he sat at home waiting on her and then she had survived initially. So she ended up bleeding out because nobody was looking for her. So that's one layer. But then something that I picked up on also is like they after they hit the deer, they call the police because that's what you do when you hit a deer. Um, And Allison Williams character steps seemingly steps up for him when the cop is like, I need his license. I need his ID. And she's like, why do you need his ID? He wasn't driving. He was a passenger. And And it gets into this the first instance of like a very contentious race relation moment which we will get into more and which is kind of at the core of the film. But on a rewatch, I realize that Alison Williams character is not standing up for him so much as she doesn't want a paper trail that he was with her in that weekend. Yeah. Cause as we learn what's going to happen to him, he's not meant to leave this family home later in the film. So this idea that like there's a paper trail of his whereabouts would be very difficult for the, uh, the family. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense now that I think about it. Because it's like, if you look at um, two other missing, or the, the three other missing, well... There's a couple. Yeah, there's, yeah, it's all, suddenly, they're gone. You know, mm-hmm. they were doing something, and next thing you know, no one's seen them for, you know, a couple weeks. Yeah, so, I mean, that, again, this just speaks to how strong of a filmmaker he is, is that for his first film, I mean... Granted, he'd been writing this film for a number of years. Like he said, I think in an interview, um, he started writing this movie when Obama got elected, basically, because this movie was a reaction to there was this idea that like once we got an African-American president, that all of a sudden racism was gone in America. And it's very clearly right now, like that's not not the the case. And we're so far removed from an Obama presidency. And so his frustration with this the guys that all of a sudden a black president cured racism in America, which is not the reality, he said was a rea- this film was a reaction to that. So to see him kind of have all of these multi-layered storytellings tied into this very nuanced commentary is just like astounding that he was able to do this on his first film. And his first film would go on to win an Oscar uh, for Best Original Screenplay, I believe. I think we've all known how good of a writer he is, especially from yeah. uh, his Key and Peel days. 
for his directorial debut. Mm. I mean, that's that's something. You know, like yeah. his ability to establish this feeling from the get-go as a brand new director. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's directed some smaller stuff like TV shows and all, but to do it in like a full theatrical film. Right. Wow. You know? Yeah. And I mean, the something that he's referenced and that um, even the producer, Jason Blum, who's in charge of Blumhouse, uh, the production company that does all the big horror movies now, like they did uh, The Invisible Man, they did the re- uh, Halloween reboot in 2018. Uh, they had said like, there's a lot of parallels between horror and comedy. So for him to have a background in comedy is not that strange to dive into horror because timing is everything in a lot of ways. So it's like, whether it's timing for a joke, which obviously anybody knows that the backbone of a good joke is the punchline and having timing. It's the same thing with a thriller or a horror movie in that the scares and the jump moments need to be paced well enough that they're not overbearing. So you become desensitized. They need to be smartly kind of implemented into the narrative. So that way, every time they happen, they catch you off guard a little bit. And to master that pacing on the first effort of directing a feature film and having this important commentary tied into it, I just think is, I mean, it's remarkable. His directing ability is phenomenal after watching this film. But I appreciate his story writing even more. I mean, the whole plot was, I mean, you, you, you could kind of, you could kind of tell something was going on. You just didn't know what, and you knew mm-hmm. it involved, um, you know, a racial element. There was a racial element to it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but the way he builds it up is really good. <laughs> yeah. Like, so what was the first scene that kind of stood out to you as an example of, there's something kind of like nefarious going on in the background. Cause again, like the film begins and nothing sit like super sinister is happening. Nobody's aggressive towards him, but everything feels like it's off a little bit. Like there's something behind the scenes, like there's gears that are turning to set something into motion and you just don't know what that thing is. I would say when he first arrives at the compound at the house and he sees mm-hmm. this uh, groundskeeper, and the look that he gives him was like, you don't know what you're about to get into right now. Mm-hmm. It's like Walter. Yeah, Walter was just he gave him that look and he was like, whoa. That that's a fantastic point because uh Walter's played by Marcus an actor named Marcus Henderson. And he gives one of the most subtly creepy well, I don't know if it's subtle, but it's one of the most obviously creepy performances of the film. But it's not really easy to describe why it's creepy. Because it's not really that he's saying something creepy or that he's being overtly creepy. He's just like very off, off-putting in terms of just being like unsettling. I would say his low-keyness yeah. uh, establishes the creepiness of it. Because like yeah. he, he, didn't, he doesn't say anything. It's, it's just it's purely physical. Like he just gives mm-hmm. them that look like facial, like stone-cold face. But the eyes, like, like obviously... Um, we, we find out later in the film, he's been, you know, completely hypnotized and had, you know, a cycle, uh, transplant, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, all that other stuff. So it's like, he can't, he's not himself, but he, his eyes, when he looks at Chris, it's kind of like, that's, that's the real Walter looking at Chris on like giving him a mm-hmm. warning, but you know, his face, facial, fe- his 
body everything else is just like being controlled by someone else yeah. and that was the first sign like hey you are walking into a lion's den like you're about <laughs> to <laughs> you're about to go through something you don't want to go through yeah henderson described it as the note that he got from jordan peel on his demeanor should be one it's like a child that has a secret that they can't tell so he kind of like he's like very kind of like he's being coy about the fact and he can barely contain the secret that he has. And we know what the secret eventually is, but he does such a good job of kind of just like showing that childlike restraint in that it's almost like killing him not to like gleefully tell him what the secret is because which again, like on this rewatch, I found his character and Georgina's character to be much more sinister because they know they just, and they obviously don't give any warning verbal warning and it just becomes that much more sinister where it's like the danger is hiding in plain sight, basically. And they don't give him the benefit of the doubt. They don't give him a heads up or anything. And just that level of deception to me is super disturbing. It's almost more disturbing than the operation that we learn about later, just because it's like he's walking into the, the lion's den and the lions couldn't be happier to have a new uh, lamb going to the slaughter, as it were. There's a similarity that I draw between this film and the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, you know, with Joaquin Phoenix, think of both movies as a glass cup with filled with water. And as the movie progresses, you see cracks develop. And then at the end, the glass shatters and you find out what's going on. Like for instance, in Joker, you see him mentally start fracturing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, at the um, zenith of the film, you see him just completely, you see that glass, metaphorically speaking, just break and him becoming the Joker. Same thing in uh, Get Out. You know, you meet Walter, gives him that look. You see, you know, a crack start forming on that glass. You meet Georgina in, you know, her interactions with the mother and the father. And the looks that she give in her expressions you see, you know, more cracks start forming. And then obviously, you know, that later that night, uh, he sees Georgina, you know, through the window. All of a sudden she's gone. And then Walter running, doing all that other stuff. The hypnotism. You see more and more of these cracks start happening until, like, the point where the glass breaks, metaphorically speaking, is when he gets tied up in the chair and the video is played in front of him. Then he, now he, like, the gig is up. You know, everyone knows what's going on. And it's just like, okay, how am I going to get out of the situation now? Right. Yeah. I mean, Does so that make for sense? me, I don't know if that metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, to- totally. Yeah. Cause it really is this, this scene that's building. I would almost say, like, yeah, I totally agree with your metaphor. At the same time, like, it's almost like so much pressure is being applied to something that's condensed that by the, fil- by the culmination of all the events and we learn what this massive plot is or the, uh, the secret of the film, basically. And that's when the compressed item is like, there's so much pressure built up that it finally explodes and it's all out in the open. It's like a supernova. Yeah, it's like a supernova. It's just like this realization that this is what has been going on. It's one of those things that you could never guess in a million years. It's one of those films that's so wholly original, the racial components and what not uh, withstanding. It's just this idea that like, you'd never be able to guess this idea that, oh yeah, these these white families have built up this secret society that 
is kidnapping black bodies and then putting the white consciousness into the black body into these people's bodies like it's just such an insane original idea that every single time i show this movie to somebody that has no idea about the movie it just completely catches them off guard and they always tell me like that never in a thousand years would i be able to guess the trajectory of this movie well i think based upon how um the four african-american actors are you know are, are portraying their characters you know something is up mm-hmm. you, you might not be able to guess what you know right. the family are, are have are doing or have done to them but you know something has been done and it, and it's just like trying to figure out well what do they do? do they have something over them so that you know they're afraid to act as themselves or like it's very clear something was done to these people so that they're not acting like themselves. Right. Yeah. So now I want to take a minute to talk about the scene that I think is honestly, I know you don't, you're not the biggest horror fan, so you might not have the same uh, frame of reference for like just hor- memorable horror moments, but I think anybody can appreciate this scene and that's the hypnotizing scene. I think that is legitimately one of the best horror scenes probably of the last like decade. This idea that, so it's presented this idea that R- Rose's parents are capable, or Rose's mother, excuse me, is capable of hypnotizing people. She uses it for her psychology and um, uh, in meeting with patients and things like that. She helps people get over like smoking and all these different things. And then how subtly she begins to hypnotize Chris and just talking to him like she's a therapist and whatnot and getting him to kind of like begin to reveal things about him that have nothing to do with his smoking. Like there's the guys that, oh, I'll hypnotize you, help you quit smoking. I don't want you smoking around my kid. But then she starts to kind of like talk to him about his past and his mother. And slowly we start to realize the influence that she begins to have over him and that he starts talking about his mother and how she was a hit and run. But then the moment that you realize like something's wrong is when you can hear the rain in the background. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of just like it, it almost becomes less of a conversation and more of like he's in a dream because what his memories are beginning to bleed into real life. And then, of course, there's that gut punch moment where we realize like he can't move. And he just starts crying while he's talking about this. And then she does that thing where she taps the glass and she goes sink into the floor. And then he kind of has this moment where he literally falls through the floor into this like, it's seemingly like endless space, basically, into the sunken place. Yeah. So first of all, I didn't think that was a horror scene. Nothing about it was, had any elements of horror, at least to me. You you didn't think that was terrifying? The idea that you're... That you're paralyzed and then you fall into this, this not, nether realm, as it not, were? Not really. To like oh, never okay. in my, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. But she said something um, a bit earlier during the film about uh, her treatments. And it was like, oh, I can't. It's something about like going at someone's weakness or, you know, underlying mm-hmm. something about how she, uh, I think it was. She was describing how she helped people quit smoking or yeah. how her husband quit smoking. Like there was, there Finding was something. their flaws or something yeah. to that extent. Yeah. So she exploits the flaws and then somehow, you know, 
fixes it. But um, I knew he was being hypnotized as soon as she picked up that teacup and started stirring mm-hmm. the spoon. And you hear that grinding of metal on, on China. Um, and I know it because I do. It's, it's like this. If you have like something in your in your hand, like a, like a pencil or something like that, and if you have ADD or mm-hmm. if you're a little antsy or not, you know, whatever it is, you might start shaking your leg, tapping your pen or doing something. And then I found some people don't like it. And then if you're in a meeting, it's not like if I'm in a meeting with somebody and I'm, you know, tapping my pen on the table, instead of listening to what I'm saying, you can see how their visual focus is now on the pen. Right. They're hearing now to a certain extent is hearing what I'm saying, but they're also hearing the tapping noise. Now yeah. your attention is divided. Mm-hmm. It, you have, to have, just, a, you just, have to have a center, a center for that. Yeah, uh, so it's like, I think it's like, it's like uh, suggested, ah, she, she was saying you need to be in a suggestive state. Mm-hmm. And in order to be in that suggestive state, she divides your attention enough so that you know you're easily you're you you're in that suggestive state like you're focusing on her hand moving the spoon the sound of that spoon grinding in the cup there's less of you paying attention to her voice and what she's saying right you know and then obviously it's at night he probably you know wanted to smoke didn't can't get it didn't get a chance to smoke just got freaked out twice, you know, his mind's already divided, you know, to, in, into several different points and her doing all this, you know, just makes it more annoying, separates his attention out even further to the point where now he is, you know, in a quote unquote suggestive state. Now right. she's diving into, you know, his deepest fears, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that brings it basically out, makes that, him more susceptible to her will. Yeah, it, it's it's just it's getting under his skin so that she can take control. Yeah, you know, I've never been hypnotized. I've never gone through. Uh, you know, I've never gone to a psychiatrist. But the closest thing I've done is only take a, a psychology one hundred course. But um, <laughs> you know, you, well, that Im- the the imagery of the teacup is so iconic now that that's actually his. Um, production company he has a production company called monkey paw and they're like you know at the beginning of films when they have that brief like three second image that plays that advertises what the production company is behind the movie his is literally a monkey paw and it's stirring that cup that's like how i icon- instantly iconic that scene and that imagery is um and peel even said again to go back to this idea that like every single thing is it's effective at face value. Like that scene for me, at least is very disturbing and seeing that imagery of him sinking into the floor and this, uh, forever falling. And he becomes a passenger in his own body, basically not in control. But even in that, like Peel has been very vocal about that scene is basically this kind of nuanced multi-layer metaphor for this idea that there's uh, a system that silences like black voices, essentially. Like, even though, Black people might be present, their voice and their ability to speak out, no matter how loudly they're speaking out against something, gets silenced. And this is obviously 
a very uh, dark interpretation of that or depiction of that. But at the same time, the same message still rings true. And it comes back to this idea that the whole movie's built around this kind of his frustration with this idea that an Obama presidency meant that some people would go on to say like racism is no longer here. And again, it ties into the fact that like, sure, people might promote this idea that like black people are included more in certain discourse, but doesn't necessarily mean just because they're literally physically there, people are adding value to their voice or letting their voice be heard. So this is very much kind of like an even more disturbing uh, depiction of that within the film or commentary. So you said there was something oppressing black people's voice uh, a couple, you know, in your last whatever. Isn't, isn't that suppression from society? Yeah. Cause that, I mean, that's, it's that's not, it's I, not a, co- I'm, I'm, it's I'm, not a coincidence that the victim in the film is black is a black man and the antagonists are all white. Yeah. I'm not trying to like blame it on anything. I'm just saying society as a whole, as portrayed in the film and in real life was never ready you know, for equality. It, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't built up for it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a lot better than what it was, you know, 200 years ago, but we still got a long way to go. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I think films like this are, again, so you and I earlier were taught before we were recording, kind of just like warming up and shooting the shit, kind of brought, I brought up this point that, Horror has always been an overlooked genre, but at the same time, horror has always been really important in film because it's used as a template to talk about topics that are uncomfortable. There's a lot of horror films over the years that have inserted political and social commentary into them, their films. Like, have, you know the film The Night of the Living Dead from back in the day, George Romero from the 60s? It I've was probably heard of it. I don't think I've seen it. Right. But I assume that you had heard of it because it's like the first major zombie movie that like blew people away, not only in how disturbing it was, but also f- the film came out in the 60s, early 60s. And it was one of the first early 60s films that a drama or horror rather that had an African-American in the lead. And he is the top dog that entire movie. He is the the film begins with a white woman being viewed as the uh, protagonist, but then ten minutes into the movie, it becomes clear that this other gentleman is the real protagonist, and he's African American. And the whole entire film, it's him telling this white family that they hold up in this abandoned farmhouse to get away from the zombies, and it's all about this white man trying to essentially abuse the black protagonist and telling him like, this is how we're going to do things, this and that. And the entire movie, the black protagonist is like, no, like I was here first. We're going to do what's safest for everybody, not what's best for you. And it very much is one of those movies that even today, it's very affecting because I could never remember a movie from that era that would feature African-Americans talking to white people in a way that they were in power and justifiably so in terms of that film or the role of that film. And so horror has always been a genre that is not afraid to tackle in a subject matter like that because it's almost more palatable for people. 
in terms of like the draw is, hey, Night of the Living Dead is a zombie movie. If you're into horror movies and you're into creatures killing people in horrific ways, you'll go see that movie. But the brilliance of that movie is that George A. Romero was capable of inserting important dialogue that for the period and even today in many regards is still not happening to the rate that it should be. I'd say, doesn't that go hand in hand? The fact that, you know, this black actor is the protagonist in a film made in the 60s, a horror film. Isn't that in and of itself ironic or uh, a metaphor? Like, society at the time, you know, wasn't, you know, particularly accepting of African-Americans, at the, you know, even, even still. And it's like, hey, we got a black actor who's the main protagonist, and it's a horror film. Mm-hmm. Is to a certain extent you can even say that's the horror of itself isn't the film, but the fact of a black actor being the main protagonist. So I forgot I forgot to mention his name. His name was uh, Dwayne Jones, uh, who oh. is the the lead actor in Night of the Living Dead, and very much this film. I think Jordan Peele is a lifelong horror fan, he said, and he has done multiple interviews where he lists off a lot of the different horror films that were influenced, uh, influenced his filmmaking career. Night of the Living Dead being one, Halloween, the original being one, Candyman. And I think Get Out really serves as a film that can coexist within the same breath as a lot of those classic horror movies um, in the sense that, especially in the, sen- in the conversation of black-led horror movies. And it's very clearly a horror film that subverts the tropes that a lot of horror movies had in like the nineties and early two thousands where that joke, like the black guy dies first, like that's a trope that everybody's familiar with. Who's ever even glimpsed at a horror movie or something. Cause to the point that it was so common that it became like a joke and not a very funny one, but it became people would like go around making that joke all the time. And I think this film really, is able to do what every horror movie should strive to do in terms of like telling a disturbing creative story. But at the same time, there's more to it than that. There's a, a purpose that is almost greater than the subject of its storytelling. Yeah. It's kind of like debunking a myth or a, um, a pre notion. Yeah. You know, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, in terms of, some of the other moments that kind of like stood out to you, what was another scene that kind of like shocked you? Um, the dinner scene. I mean, the, the first one when the, yeah, the, drunk. the first, yeah. Um, like after the, like the very first day he meets the family, whatnot, the brother comes in and then you kind of shift to the dinner scene. You know, you knew something was up when the dad's like, Oh yeah. You know, all this other stuff. Yeah. I would have voted for Obama for third term. It's like, okay, <laughs> come on. Like, that's like that's too cliche and then at dinner the brother uh he said it's like you like mma it's like no and he's like imagine you in mma you have the perfect physique and all this other stuff and i'm like starts talking about genealogy and i was like whoa 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 i mean come on like let's put the brakes there but Mm -hmm. you know um rose in the beginning of the film was like yeah you know my family aren't racist or so something along those lines. Really? What your brother just said completely, right. you know, mm-hmm. debunks, you know, that train of thought. 
let alone, you know, Georgina and Walter and how, you know, they were reacting and acting. I mean, that's one of those main uh, initial instances where you start to see the cracks behind the illusion that this family has been casting over uh, Chris. And that, again, like the father saying these things that are like very awkward, but at the same time, they're not really, it's kind of what you would expect somebody out of touch to say. Like he says, oh, I would have voted for Obama a third time. And Rose even gives him a heads up about that. And it's like, that's a goofy thing to say. And it's very try hard, but that's something that's some, that generally if somebody said that to you, it, they were trying to come from a good place, even if it's kind of a misguided one, you know what I mean? But at the same time, as soon as like the brother Jeremy gets drunk, he starts his language becomes a little more sinister and a little more uh, highly questionable, shall we say, when he brings like genetic makeup and genealogy and all of these kind of like that's taking it another step further, trying to like break down Chris as being a specimen when before he was being treated as a person to a certain extent, a black person. He wasn't just being like the family very much was treating him as like, oh, you're to a certain extent, I guess they were treating him like he's a specimen, but it was, there was the illusion of kindness at least. Whereas now the brother is like, oh, your genetic makeup is fantastic for fighting and all this stuff. And it's just like, I'm a person. And now there's not that kind of like kind illusion of kindness over it. It's kind of like seeing the rawness of their thought process. And essentially their thought processes is that He's not a person. He's a specimen. Yeah, I, th- I think that right there at that scene, I was like, wait, so- something's definitely going on. Like, especially like you, that was a clear indication they did something, you know, physically to uh, both Volturi and Georgina mm-hmm. for them to act the way they do. And then another scene when uh chris well the whole dinner uh the whole party what is like garden party yeah that that was more of an indication that something's going on like they don't see chris they don't even see him as a, a black person like they they right. see him as like an alien like an extraterrestrial like what the hell are you doing like and, and the way it's, they're acting and all that other stuff. Nothing is nothing is more standout from that scene than in that scene where all the white, all these weird white people have shown up and they're like trying to talk with Chris about different, trying to relate with him and all these different things that are just like so awkward and over the top. But that one guy says, uh, for the last few hundred years, fair skin was fashionable, but now the pendulum swung the other way and black skin is fashionable, is in fashion. And it's just like, what? at that point, the illusion is almost completely shattered because you're just like, what, is he, what do you mean in fashion? Like, what? Yeah, at that point, it was like, okay, the gig is up. The only thing we got to know is what you're doing to these people. Right. You know, like, that was... I'm, I mean, that whole... I mean, that bleeds into... It's literally like an auction block in that all these people... It's literally, a 21st century, literally. like, slavery auction block in that all these white people are coming through and they don't view him as a person. They view him as a, as a thing basically that they can uh, bet on and buy or uh, a commodity and buy. Yeah. as a commodity. And like one woman is like feeling up his arms. He's like, Oh, he's very muscular. And then one guy is like an aged golfer who his body's like 
tells, oh, I'm friends with Tiger Woods and all this stuff. And it's just like, okay. And then it, of course, becomes even more and more sinister where we get that fantastic shot of uh, Rose's father who's in the gazebo, basically. And it's like a close-up of him doing a silent auction. And then as the camera pans out, you see he's standing next to a picture of Chris. And then you're like, holy shit, they're auctioning him off. Yeah, like, uh, oh, let's go play bingo. I was like, okay, right. bingo. He holds up a card um, with, you know, one well, bingo card with one line, you know, filled out. Another person does it again. I was like, wait, this doesn't seem like playing bingo. Seriously, when everything's right. silent. And then as it zooms out, you're like, you find out, as, as you said, this is not bingo. This is a straight up auction. Right. Uh, you, you know, Chris is the person being auctioned, but it's like, you, you're still kind of wondering, well, what are they going to do to him? Like, what did he just buy Chris? He's not just buying Chris. Obviously, you know, they're going to do something to him to make him submissive and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then after that whole ordeal, he, Chris goes back up to his room and then Georgina is right behind him. And then you yeah. see him start talking and all of a sudden Georgina starts crying. That's almost mm-hmm. like her original character just kind of s- snuck in there and then started crying. It's like, I need help. And that's like a telltale sign. Something's not wrong with her, but it's like the grandma was in control, but you know, the real Georgina is like, you know, slipping out a little bit, trying to escape. See, my, I interpreted that scene differently. I interpret, I interpret it as again, like a sinister moment where Walt and Georgina are, they're obviously Rose's, we find out that it's Rose's grandparents inside of these two people that Rose helped kidnap. I interpret it as the grandmother doesn't, she's like trying to hold back her emotions in the sense that like Chris says, like, I get nervous when I'm around too many white people, you know what I'm saying? Kind of thing. And the grandmother's so upset and she can't break character that she starts like crying because of like the restraint that she's showing. Like, I don't know whether it's cause she's so angry that like, she just hates the fact that this black person is talking to her that way or what, but I always took it as like her holding back her anger. That's just how I interpreted it. Just because again, like I find it so much more sinister again, that, both Georgina and uh, and Walter are very much aware of Chris's fate, and yet they do nothing to warn him. Obviously, they wouldn't, but it just makes it so much more sinister that you know this horrible fate this guy is about to succumb to, and yet they could have given him a heads up, but of course they don't. Well, I, I never looked at it this way, uh, but is it, that's a very interesting take. But you see how what they're doing isn't perfect, because... Um, when Chris's camera goes off and that flash disorients um, one of the one of the guys, he's like married to like Andre. what? Andre, Andre, the one that gets kidnapped in the beginning. Yeah, so Andre's married now, married to you know like a sixty-year-old woman and all that other stuff. <laughs> and then Chris's camera's flash goes off, and then he starts panicking, the nosebleed and everything. You know from that little scene whatever they're doing to these people isn't bulletproof. There are ways to get it out, whether it's something physical or psychological, it, it, it can be broken. So I see that as, well, if their method isn't perfect, that means, you know, the original personality can kind of 
there are cracks and it could kind of slip through. Mm-hmm. And I see, you know, the opening scene with Walter giving Chris that look as one of them and Georgina crying as the other. Mm-hmm. I see it as they're, they're talking all that and Georgina is crying, like warning Chris, you have no idea what's going to happen. And I'm crying because I can't help you. I can't say anything to, you know, warn you of what's going on. My tears are the only warning that I could produce. I got you. you I know? could, I could see, I could see that too. But that, that's a very, I like how, wow. I, I, I never saw it as the grandma being angry. Um, yeah. Cause like she disconnects her phone, his phone. Cause she doesn't obviously want him calling for help or anything like that. So that's, but again, I think this speaks to just how strong this film is, is that we can have two very valid interpretations of a single thing. And yet, our interpretations of a small moment like that don't fundamentally change the overall movie. It's you know like I mean? uh, Black that, Mirror, that, that movie, yeah. where it's like no matter what you watch, the story is still relatively the same. Right. Well, and I think that's really telling of a talented filmmaker in that we can have conversations like that, even for seemingly like innocuous moments in the film. Um, that's definitely a strong, I guess just in general, like this film has such a strong cast across the board because, um, Betty Gabrielle, who plays Georgina, like she doesn't have a lot of moments in the film, but every single moment she has is memorable. And it's not always just because of what she's saying. It's like her physicality and her facial uh, movements and things like that. Efficient. I think, you know, people like Walter and Georgina don't have a lot of screen time, but the screen time that do have the the uh, effect is very powerful you know their portrayal is very efficient you know whatever time whatever on screen time they have you know is used very effectively and, and efficiently you know like small subtle actions you know just build up suspense and, and continue so, the well, story yeah absolutely so while we're talking about uh performances what did you think of Rod, motherfucking TSA, uh, who plays Chris's best friend, who's played by the comedian Lil Ray Howery. What'd you think of him? Because he is very much the overt comic relief within the film. Yeah, he's obviously. definitely the comic relief. He kind of um, he's he he gives a pause in the film. You know, like it, I'm sure for a lot of horror films, there are instances where you, the, the horror aspect of it is gone and gives you like kind of you know, a little rest. And, you know, Rod does that. He gives in that comedic relief just to release, relieve the stress, you know, and the suspense for starts building back up, mm-hmm. you know, definitely, you know, lighthearted, funny, and it's, it's a good way to break up the rhythm and the flow of the film. You know, it's not consistent. It's not like this roller coaster ride where you keep going up, going up, and then you dr- it just drops. It's like, oh, you right. go up, then you plateau. It's like, oh, wait, what's going on? And then, you know, you continue the rise. So it really, it really speaks to Peel's background and humor in that he knows when the film needs jokes. He knows when there's kind of lulls in the movie, or not necessarily lulls, I guess, but there's moment too much tension is never a good thing. So he knows when to apply certain comedic touches and the comedic touches are all very much in line with what the film is generally about or its commentary. Like a lot of uh, 
Rod's jokes are all about like Chris is going to get is being kidnapped by a white sex cult. Like white people love hypnotizing black people and putting them in sex cults and shit. And like those kind of little moments are so terrific because the humor, even if it doesn't end up being what he says is not what's happening at the same time, like it ties into this idea that like black people are skeptical of white people accepting them in a lot of situations. And the reason that's funny is that there's truth in what he's saying. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, he pretty much people are not like dead on, like even from a comedic standpoint and we as audience know, like, you know, you're close, but you know, the fact that he can see it this far away, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, as a third party, let alone Chris, who's first person in the situation. Um, but the way he does it, it's like the scenes with Rod are usually right after, you know, sequences that build up a lot of suspense. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like this balloon, right? You pump a lot of air into it. It's already expanded. And before continuing with the suspense, making it even more and try to burst the bubble, you, you introduce Rod to, you know, kind of let the bubble settle, let, let the balloon settle in with the pressure. And then after the whole comedic relief, you go back to the building suspense and it's like that drop that yeah. adds even more suspense to whatever has already been built. There's a really uh, fantastic, the scene that I never appreciated until my recent rewatch was the one where Rod actually goes to the police and he start and he starts talking, telling, trying to tell the black detective like what's going on. And that scene, I interpreted a lot differently, kind of like with all of the different, uh, racial things that have been happening recently and like the friction between the police and different communities. Now I was interpreting that scene as very different because you assume going into it, like he was able to get, find the one black detective that would listen to him, that would share his, uh, his views on white people and like suspicion of white people. And then because she's a cop, all of a sudden she has zero like, sensibilities that she shares with him this idea that like he's saying all these things about like the white people are kidnapping him and you know you got to watch out for the white people and stuff like that and she's just like okay this is like a joke like she doesn't she's not able to relate with him on any level whatsoever well when you look at it she's what working with a bunch of white folks in the uh, and like like two other uh, white detectives you know are in the background listening to this story it's kind of like she's She's one she's of assimilated them. assimilated into, yeah. yeah, it's like she's not even black anymore almost. It's more like she's defined as being a cop and any sensibilities that she shared with him before that out the window. kind of like dissipated. Yeah, yeah, they dissipated. She had to give them up to be a cop. Uh, that was just a random aside that I thought of while I was watching last night. But uh, before we kind of like get into the conclusion, was there one one other scene or anything you wanted to touch upon? Or you just want to dive into the conclusion? Well, or the, I, the end of the film. We we know like this film is it's all fiction and whatnot. But what I don't know, how are you going to operate on a man? Open brain surgery in a basement that's not medically sealed, that's not sterile. Danny, he's a he's a doctor putting a a black man's uh, a white man's brain into a black man's body. So I think we're going to do away I mean, with any sort of. Uh, scientific notions just, of accuracy in this. I'm just saying, how are you going to... A scalp... Yeah, you can you can cut off the skin off the top of your head with the scalpel, but you're not going to cut the skull open with the scalpel. You, you need a saw for that. And I think you, you need to be very saw. precise. Now, this is just me nitpicking, 
I a little bit. Because <laughs> like, how you how are you gonna cut the top part of a skull off without damaging the brain? And he doesn't seem like he. And a major surgery like that is not done by one person. You know, you have you a know, whole. I'm, you have teams of people doing it with equipment monitoring the physical status of the patient at all times. I'm going to chalk, I'm gonna, I'm gonna chalk that one up to uh, it's a movie and I'm not going to put too much thought into that because it's a nonsense operation to begin with. Yeah, like, but, like uh, obviously I know it's a movie and all that, but I I saw it and I was just like, wait, this movie obviously doesn't, well, it wasn't meant to be medically accurate, but that, that was one yeah, thing no. that I saw. I was like, wait, no, this, you know, those two lines do not intersect at all. Well, so in talking about the conclusion, one of the scenes that I really, really love is when Chris is tied down to the chair in the basement about to, and he's awaiting his operation and he's doing that nervous thing that he does where he's scratching at the sofa, or the arms on the chair rather. Um, and he ends up putting the cotton balls in his ears the next time that they think that they've hypnotized him. And then that's what he's able to attack Jeremy when Jeremy goes to move him into the wheelchair and that... And then he, he beats the shit out of him with the croquet ball or whatever and then takes the cotton balls out of his ears. That was one of those moments, like, I was so happy I saw this movie in theaters the night it came out with a packed theater because when that happened, everybody cheered. And it was just one of those really, really fantastic... Yeah, it was one of those fantastic kind of community experiences in a theater that I don't usually have because I don't, I don't like going to the movie theater, to be honest. I can't stand sitting around other people that are doing this or doing that. But it, this is one of those movies where it's so easy to cheer for the protagonist that when there's one of those oh shit moments, he's not about to be taken advantage of and he gets like revenge finally. Like that's one, that's an awesome moment in the movie for me. Yeah. I like how um, the tea come now becomes a trigger. Mm -hmm. And his first thing was don't let her start doing it. Right. Yeah. And then the then he stabs the father with yeah, the, with the deer. deer antlers. It's it gets pretty brutal at the end. I I don't know why he didn't like take out Jeremy like permanently. He kind of just yeah, like that, you that's know. that's one of those moments that I watched this with my brother uh, last night, and that was a moment that we both were just like, "You got to double tap my man there." Yeah, this but then we get and but then at least he doesn't kill him there. But and then we get that very satisfying curb stomp, which was pretty well deserved. I would say. Yeah, the un ending overall, you know, pretty like I I never expected Rod to show up. Like I I thought that is one of my yeah. I thought on, um it was the police of the town seeing mm -hmm. him. He's either a part of this whole thing or you know going to arrest Chris. And I was like, oh, so this is probably going to end with him either in jail or going back and getting you know whatever like it's it's like you th you think you're out of the hole but but no someone something comes and pulls you back down into it i never right. expected you know rod to show up and kind of be like the co comedic relief at the end to you know you know end it all um, yeah it was a, it was a nice yeah. change of pace i mean cuz usually when a cop shows up in that situation you would think well do you know where well, this is going <laughs> then you yeah. open the door and it says tsa police oh Rod, okay. That was another moment where the entire theater started cheering because everybody has that moment where they're like, oh, he's fucking dead. Like he's sitting on top of her choking her as the cop pulls up 
And then the door opens and you see it's actually Rod. And you're just like, fuck yes. Because so there's a deleted scene for the film where it does end with it being an actual cop. Like they filmed that ending where it's a normal, it's just a regular cop and the cop arrests him. And then the film ends with Rod visiting Chris in prison. And they have a conversation between the plexiglass over the phone. Um, That I don't, so I think that's too dour of an ending for this movie. Uh, That's like like, stereotypical Hemingway. Where the the trajectory goes, it's too predictable. But with Rod, it's like, you know, what the hell? Like, And it ties into the comedic sensibilities of the movie. It's not a comedy by any extent, but at the same time, it does have a lot of humor in it and it fuels into its feel-good humor in a way that the entire movie is so oppressive of the protagonist that for him to take the kind of easy way out and be like, yeah, America's that bad. And then it ends up with him getting arrested. Like it feels like it would be a little too much for this movie because the movie is such a, it's so blatantly piling on its protagonist. It's a happy ending. It's like a fairy tale ending almost. Right. And I really think that that's what this movie needed. I don't think this is the type of movie that would benefit from a, I'll, I'll put it this way, like a nasty ending or ba- not a bad ending. Cause I think I like movies that have endings like that, where it's like, they say fuck it to their characters because this is the fate that they've been prescribed. But in a movie like this, that dabbles in so much humor, I feel like it does need that last, like, holy shit moment that is super satisfying. And again, is super rewarding. I feel like with a film that has this fucked up of a plot, you know, regardless of, well, obviously the racial part of it adds even more to the fucked upness of it. You almost need a, a feel-good ending to, you know, uplift you from this, you know, really like wild roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, absolutely. Was there uh, any closing thoughts you had on Get Out? I know it's a, it's a lot, and we covered. I think we covered a good amount. Uh, Overall, would you just overall would you recommend this to other people? I'd recommend. I know that I'd even watch it again. Um, Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. I probably wouldn't describe it to people as a horror, in Mm. the fear of it turning people off. You know, Mm. I'd I'd just say uh, as a thriller. I'd even say, Mm. if did you watch Shutter Island? And if you liked it, you and you watched it. This has got similar aspects. That and like Stonehurst right. Asylum, you know, things of that nature. I where need, I still need to see that. It's kind of long. I'm not gonna, not gonna lie. Yeah, not, that, it's, that it's, is, it's a, I remember it's a lesser version of those uh, Shutter Island and Get Out. If I've already seen the better version of a, that movie, I think I might just rewatch one of the two I've seen. But uh, it is de- this is definitely a movie that is very rewatchable. Um, and I've even I went back and I was reading to supplement my understanding of the film and whatnot after the first time I saw it. They recommended watching it and focusing on Rose the entire time the second time you watch it to begin to pick up on little nuances of the things that she does. Like that's how I picked up on the idea of her confronting the cop. It's not so much for Chris's benefit, like I had said, it's more her benefit. Um, Just like there's little moments like that that um, really, really stand out. Um, And I mean, I would love to have you back on and watch uh, his uh, and talk about his Jordan Peele's second film, uh, Us which is more of a horror film, but at the same time, it's still very thriller-esque. 
but I would love to have you on to talk about that sometime because I think it'd be interesting to n- talk about the things that he replicates from get get out into us, but also the ways in which he tries to expand his uh, skill set in being a feature film director. That's a solid movie to base your foundation on. You know, oh, yeah. this, well, the way you described it, it looks like he took the foundation of get out and then remolded it into uh, or rebuilt another structure on top of it for us. I mean, yeah, he extrapolates a lot of what was successful about get out and he does experiment in some different ways with us. And I was a fan of it. And some, like, I think since you are, we're real, you would be willing to rewatch uh, Get Out. Um, I think you will enjoy certain aspects of us that would want you to rewatch it in terms of just like nitpicking, or not nitpicking rather, but picking certain things out of scenes like clues and whatnot. I think you would probably dig that more than some people that haven't been too keen on the movie because of those types of things. The one thing I didn't like was how obvious some things are. That's probably in, in Get Out. In Get Out, yeah. Aside from you know the medical whole situation, you know the surgery. That's, that's one thing I didn't wasn't so keen on was the fact that it was very obvious the whole family was up to something. You know, they didn't downplay it. It was just about figuring out what they were doing. But it was, I almost wish that they downplayed that a little bit. Don't make it so obvious. But, I, you know, once again, you know, there was a reason why Jordan Peele wanted this fact to be so obvious to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt like if it, it would it'd be more of a horror and more sinister if it if he did downplay the fact that this family was doing these things to people. My thing is, is that if they downplay it, then they have to spend more time develop getting to that. And so the more time that there is, like this is such a brisk film. I think it's an hour and 40 minutes or yeah, something like that or an hour and 45. But it's one of those movies that is so brisk that I feel like anything that deviates from what we got would just it would just drag it out to a point where it's like we got it like we got to get to this faster and i think especially when he has something important to say with the movie the brisker the better in terms of not bogging down either the message or the entertainment value of the movie yeah, I mean, uh, that's, again, just, that's mean, like a personal thing this is just me nitpicking but the length of the film you know really like nothing was dragged out uh, mm-hmm. longer than it needed to be you know yeah. pacing everything was good um, I'm just saying, like, if he wanted a more of a horror and have a more sinister, then yeah, tone it down. But overall, you know, I liked what he did with the film. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, I'll make sure to start describing more horror movies I enjoy as thrillers to get yeah, you to don't, see them. Yeah, don't tell uh, like, you, you describe us <laughs> as horror first, and that's probably why I haven't watched it yet. Well, maybe in the future sometime, we'll uh, I'll get to have you back on and we can chat about it, but... I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come chat about Get Out. Uh, Thank you. No problem, man. Anytime. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Daily Horror Habit podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service. And follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram or at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.